So, a little audience participation at the beginning, maybe. Um, when was the last time the word joy crossed your lips? Uh, when was the last time you used the word joy in a sentence not related to church? Um, anybody? Yesterday? That's good. Well, you guys are dismissed. You don't have to stay for the sermon. Uh, we have free cake in the back for those of you who... That's great. Um, about two decades or so ago, I was, I was still in business. I was preaching on the side, and uh, the Lord led me to do a sermon uh, on joy. And I thought it would be cool to, you know, just survey people and find out when was the last time they used the word or felt the emotion. And, and uh, so I... Talk to everybody, my boss, my vendors, the customers, my colleagues, the guy at the Taco Bell drive through and um, the men were terrible, okay? The men were awful. They, did, they just stumbled around. It was kind of like they, they finally choked out something about their family, like that was the right answer. You know, obviously it is a weird question to ask somebody, to ask a stranger. Now, the women were... The women did much better. You know what the women said. Who wants to guess what the women said? Anybody? The women were much better. It's like the men didn't think it was manly to be joyful, I guess. But the women talked about either being asked to be married their wedding day or the day they gave birth. So the women did much better. So what's the definition of joy? How would you define it? I think it's past happy, right? It's past contentment. It's past satisfaction. Uh, it's, I think it's bigger than those words. I looked up the word. It means perfect pleasure and delight. When was the last time? Perfect pleasure and delight. For me, I could take it a step further and say that it's simultaneous exuberance of the heart, mind, and soul. And I, I, think, I think only Christians kind of understand that. I don't think an unbeliever can even get close to understanding what we're trying to say. So we have this perfectly good word in our English language, joy, that we almost never use. It begs the question, because if you read the Bible, you realize God in the Bible is full of joy. 211 times in the NAS translation, the word, uh, the, the original language is translated into joy. I think 190 plus times the word rejoice is translated from the original language. Over 400 times, joy and rejoicing is mentioned in the Bible. So why, if our Creator is so full of joy, aren't we the created? Well, if we know our Bibles, we understand the problem here. Um, I think we understand the problem. But first I want to quote... Uh, I want to quote my favorite American pastor, John Piper. I love what he says about God here. Uh, I love what he says. Um, listen to him. When we come to our Father, we find that His heart is full of deep and unshakable happiness. Listen, if you don't have this view of God, you have the wrong view of God. You're not looking at the biblical God. You're looking at some caricature. I think Piper nails it right here. Our Father's heart is full of deep and unshakable happiness. If you don't know Him like that, you don't know Him. 
And we can be sure that when we seek our happiness in Him, we will not find Him, I love this, out of sorts. God is never out of sorts. We will not find a frustrated, gloomy, irritable Father who wants to be left alone, but instead a Father whose heart is so full of joy, it spills over onto all of those who are thirsty. I've said it to you uh, on numerous occasions, and just recently, I think within the last week or two, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Tim, uh, Paul calls God the blessed God. And what does blessed mean? It means happy. If you don't know Him like this, you don't know the biblical God. He's an infinitely happy God. The Bible is about the joy of God from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation. What did the angels do when God said, let there be? What did He do? Anybody remember? Job chapter 38, verse 7, the morning uh, stars sang together and all the sons of God, the angels, shouted for joy. They'd never seen matter before. There'd never been matter before. God spoke it into existence. And they rejoiced and they worshiped. Redemption is driven by joy. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. And finally, eternity will be overflowing with joy. You know the famous psalm. Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are Pleasures forever. So again, I just repeat the question. Why aren't you full of joy? Why isn't the whole cosmos full of joy? If this is who God is, again, we know. Genesis chapter 3. Man rebelled. We have done what uh, the prophet Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. He says, you are drinking from wells that can no, can hold no water. He actually says, be appalled the cosmos. Be appalled heavens and shudder and be very desolate. For my people have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. This is why there's very little joy in the human race. We have forgotten God. We've exchanged, we've exchanged Him who is the source of all joy, happiness, pleasure, satisfaction for self-love and sin. This is why there's very little joy in the world. This is why human beings don't use this word very often. They have no idea what it is. Only born-again believers have some small sense (laughs) as compared to the joy of God. What we're talking about here Jeremiah said, you've forsaken God, the source of all life and all joy. Unrestrained narcissism will never quench your soul. Most of you already know that. Some of you are still too young to know. If you've reached any age at all, you know that self-love is not going to make it happen for you. I say it to you a lot. Don't mean to offend But it's a clever way to make a point. You're not that interesting. And most of you already know that you're not that interesting. God is infinitely interesting. (laughs) 
Hey, after a billion eternities, He will still blow your mind. He will still fascinate you with things you have never thought of before. This is how amazing our Creator God is. So there's only one source of true, deep, lasting, satisfying joy for the human soul. Colossians 1.16 We were created by Him and what? For Him. That's it. If you're trying to find joy anywhere else, you're drinking from a dry well. There's no water there. It must be Christ. It can only be Christ. Not some pseudo-God or pseudo-Christ. It must be the biblical God. The biblical Jesus. He is the source of life and joy and all happiness. I tell you all the time, human life is all about God. Human life is all about God. Human life is not about anything less than God. And I, I just want to guess that some of you are living your life during the week with little to no reference in any practical sense to God. Yeah, you have this macro notion, but it's not in the micro, right? You haven't, as I've been saying a lot to you over the last year, you haven't brought the awe of God into the minutiae of your life. This is one reason you don't have as much joy as you might otherwise have. God means for you to bring the awe that you know of Him into the minutiae of your life. So we are like the Old Testament Jews. We have made the exchange. We have forsaken God. We have loved sin and self more than we have loved Him. You guys remember Pilgrim's Progress, right? Um, Vanity Fair. What, what were all the things that men exchanged their souls for at Vanity Fair? Anybody remember? I'll just read the list to you. Ego, honor, titles, power, fame, prestige, popularity, positions, money, houses, land, stocks, possessions, beauty, fashion, illicit sex, lust, sports, entertainment, husbands, wives, children, and I've always loved the last one, fashionable religion. <laughs> right? Men exchange their souls and their lives and their joy for these things that cannot satisfy the human soul. We were made by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. So I'll just stop and ask you before we get into the text. Do you know that's true? And are you living like that's true? There's a world of difference, and I always bring it up. There's a world of difference between knowing that it's true and living like it's true. This is, this is dogma, and this is the born again the life of a disciple. There's a cosmos worth of difference here. A cosmos worth of difference. The Bible says about you and me that we exchange the, the truth and glory of God for lesser things. And the Bible says about God, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, He has staged an intervention. Right? God's come for a people. God's come for a people that will glorify His name to get us off the dry wells of sin and self that we might drink endlessly from that, you know, that, that, that picture in Revelation, the, 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 the river that just flows out from the throne. Right? The living water. 
The living water that we might drink from the living water. Two weeks ago I asked you, then I'm going to get into the text. Two weeks ago I asked you, why is it good news to you that your sins are forgiven? Does anybody remember? Now, we know the most prominent answers here, so I won't go to hell. Oh, so I'll go to heaven. Oh, so I won't have a guilty conscience. Oh, there was one more. What was it? Oh, uh, I want the blessing of God. And there might be several more. But does anybody remember the reason that the biblical reason, the ultimate reason that we should be glad that our sins are forgiven. Does anybody remember? Pardon me? God. God. That's why it's good news that your, sin, your sins are forgiven in Christ. You get God. You get God. Listen, if, you, if you're pursuing and loving the blessings of God, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. It's not about the blessings of God. It's about God. Karen and I were talking this week. I would be so bored if I lived eternally without God. I would get, I would get bored so quickly, I think. I just think it would be sheer monotony not to have this sacred romance, you know, this eternal gasp thing going on with God. I would not want it. I would not want it. I don't want to live forever without God. The good news of the Gospel is God. And He has staged an intervention and He has brought us out of our sin and brought us into His presence. So context for those of you who are visiting. Uh, this is the last night of Jesus' life. He's on His way. Please turn. I, we didn't read the text. I've got, uh, I think, 18 verses, which is a lot of verses for me to cover. Um, I usually don't cover that many verses. John 16, we'll begin in John 16, verse 16, that's where we'll begin. Again, the context, uh, Jesus, they've left the upper room, He's on His way to the Garden of Gethsemane, He's continuing to teach and exhort His men on the way He will be dead within hours, and this is the last little bit of teaching before He begins to pray. John 17, as you may know, is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and that is, a, that is breathtaking. We'll spend three weeks in John, at least three weeks in John 17, that will bring us to the cross and to the resurrection. So, that's the context. Verse 16 to 19. Jesus says, A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? that I said, a little while, and you will not behold me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. So the disciples, as always, <laughs> are confused. Um, and I understand it to a point. They are confused. But I do want to make a point about it. One reason these guys are always confused is they brought their preconceived notions about God to God. You understand what I'm saying? They had a preconceived notion about God. 
And this is what I see many Christians do. And they bring that preconceived notion to the Bible. And if the Bible doesn't agree with that preconceived notion, then they're in horror. Right? They're, they're, they're distraught. My God's not like that. Well, if it's in the Bible, may I lovingly say, oh yes, He is like that. You have, a, you have an idol in your head. You have a false God in your head. If it says it in the Bible, that's the God He is. The God you want or may want in your flesh, He does not exist. There's so much evidence, I won't get into it. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it right now. So much evidence that, that, that the Bible is the Word of God. No human being would ever write this. No human being would ever write this. No human being would create a God like this. A God of absolute, utter, total holiness that is unapproachable. No human being is going to create a God like that. That's the God of the Bible. And here's the beautiful thing. He is unapproachable. But He has approached us. <laughs> gives me goosebumps, man. He has approached us. What was it in the garden? Oh, Adam and Eve were trying to find God. Where's God? They were looking everywhere for God, but they couldn't find God. Where was God? Is that what it was like? What happened? He came for them. And if you're a Christian tonight, He came for you. He came for you. This is the Word of God. I want to make two big points. They had, this, they had this preconceived notion about Him. They didn't understand the Scripture. They had constructed a false Messiah. They wanted a conquering warrior, king, not a sacrificial lamb. They didn't understand and so this is an important lesson for you and me that we know the God of the Bible. You read it for yourself. You understand it for yourself. Yes, talk to me or, or anyone you would like to, but you better be able to see it for yourself or don't believe any pastor. There are more false teachers, there are more false preachers in the world than there are true. That's my firm conviction. That's based on anecdotal observation. <laughs> okay? So I can't, I can't prove it to you. So how many times have we said it? Bad theology hurts people. You must be a student of the Bible. False religion and pseudo-Christianity love to tell you who they think God is. It doesn't matter who they think God is. What matters is the God who is. And this book leaves no guesswork about that. No guesswork. Jesus Christ is God. The second point I want to make here is in passing simply is here in verse 19, there's a beautiful truth. Jesus knew they wanted to ask Him a question. Don't you love this? It made me think of Isaiah 65, 24. God says, before they call, I will answer. I love that text. Before they call, I will answer. Before you can even begin to formulate the fact that you want to cry out to God about something, He's known it from eternity past. I love that about God. It makes prayer really, um, uh, it, it makes prayer really easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> Listen, you don't have to go on. You don't have to drone on and on and on with God. He already knows. Just love Him. Just worship Him. 
I have a shorthand in prayer many, many times. I just say, God, You know. You know. And I delight in what You'll do. I, I, I just, You know and I delight in it. I delight what You have planned for me. So this little while here, what, is, what are we talking about here? Obviously, uh, He's talking to the disciples, the eleven that are still with Him. He's talking about... Uh, his crucifixion and resurrection. So we are not in on that scene. We will not see Him like that. They will physically see Him again. Secondly, there's another and deeper meaning here in verse 17 because it says, I go to the Father. What's He talking about? What's He talking about? After Jesus' ascension into heaven, they will also see Him in a deeper way. How will that happen? Anybody want to guess? At Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit comes... It's like Jesus is saying, after a little while, you'll begin to see me. And after another little while, you'll really begin to see me, right? As the Holy Spirit comes and opens our hearts and minds and enables us to get some small sense of just how great He is. We are in on this scene. We did not physically see Him come out of the grave as these eleven did. But we are in on the Holy Spirit-enabled seeing. Jesus says, I go to the Father. I ascend into heaven. Then you'll really start to see. You'll really start to see. (laughs) I love this. I love it. It's what we saw in John 16, right? John 16, verses 13 to 15. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll disclose to you. He'll disclose to you. He'll disclose to you. God is disclosing Himself to His people. Again, it's the best gift He has to give. There is no greater gift than Himself. And He freely gives it to His people. It's like the guy, Matthew 13, 44, which is a true hallmark of, 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 um, of conversion. You remember the guy that found the treasure in the field. What does he do? What does he do? What's the guy that finds the treasure in the field? What does he do, Matthew 13? He buys the field. He, he liquidates. There's a great metaphor here. He liquidates everything he has and everything he is to have this. I think this is a picture of seeing who Christ is. Okay? This is really seeing who he is. He becomes your treasure. He becomes your treasure. I liquidate everything. I must have Him. Right? God's the Gospel. This guy's a perfect uh, illustration of that. He got a glimpse of Christ. God's the Gospel. I'm liquidating. I must have Him. I must have Him. We made this point two weeks ago and I won't belabor it but the Holy Spirit is communicating the compelling beauty of God. He is disclosing the boundless grandeur of Jesus Christ to us. It's exactly what's happening with the guy in Matthew 13, 44. As we said several weeks ago, born-again believers are in on the sacred romance. It will take a billion eternities to see all that God is, which is to say we never will. And as Ephesians 3 talks about, 
It will take forever to be filled up to all the fullness of God. Jesus says to His men, in a little while after the Holy Spirit comes, you will really start to see Me and you will never stop starting to see Me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is not like anyone else you have ever met. You will never stop starting to see Him. The romance will always be fresh with Him. Verses 20 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. For her joy, for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. There's a beautiful truth here. For those who are in Christ, God is going to turn your sorrow into joy. God is committed to this, and God will do this. He will do this. He's done this in the macro sense, in that He has reconciled His people to His Son, or to Himself through His Son, and He even does it in a micro sense. And I can tell you, I've had some experience with the Lord, I've had nights. Uh, where I couldn't cry anymore, numbing, excruciating, sorrow, pain, grief. But God comes and God heals and God is a balm. God is a balm. B-A-L-M. To the soul. And even if you still have to cry, yeah, you can rest and trust in the joy that is yours in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just put a band-aid on your sorrow. He turns it into joy. God means for you to believe it. And God means for you to live like you believe it. And so when the bad news comes, what do your children see? What do your colleagues see? What do your friends and neighbors see? Are we a pagan? Are we like a pagan in a crisis? Or do we worship like Job? God says, I'll turn that sorrow into joy. I'll do it. God says, I'll do it. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. And what I'm saying to you is, if you're His... The sorrow's coming. We are not exempt from tribulation and from trial and from grief and from mourning. We are not exempt. In this life, you will have trouble, as Jesus will say at the end of this text. We are not exempt. But Jesus is our joy. And inexplicably, He can turn that sorrow into joy. Your sorrow, he says, will be turned to joy. Obviously, he's talking to his men about the fact that he will soon be killed and buried. But this is true in our lives, beloved. 
You may not see it all in this life. You may have to see it in the next. But you know, here's the deal. What's Christianity about? It's about faith. What pleases God? Faith. Is your faith real? Or is it just something you talk about? Well, what's your kids going to see when it gets hard? When it hits the wall? What are they going to see? Are they going to see you trusting in God who's made this promise to you? <laughs> Even if you can't fathom how it could ever work into any, anything that resembles joy? Listen, you know, I tell you this all, it's like cheating. Christianity's like cheating. <laughs> it's like cheating. You guys remember John 11? You guys remember John 11, right? Jesus delayed and Lazarus died. What was that about? Anybody remember what John 11 was about? Martha and Mary sent for Jesus. He tarried. What was it about? God's glory. You remember the text? He loved them, so he tarried. What? You know, your average, obviously, your average worldling has no idea what that means. Sadly, many people who sit in the church have no idea how that could be love. Well, how was that love that he tarried allowing them to go through this sorrowful trial? How was it love? Well, what's the most loving thing God has for his people? What is it? That we don't die? No, that we get God. And so in John 11, I love John 11, I could preach it every Sunday, right? So, so in John 11, Lazarus dies and Martha and Mary, it's awful, man. It's terrible. It's been terrible. It's awful. Jesus is going to reveal Himself in a brand new way. They have, they have some sense of how great Jesus is, but He's about to blow them away, right? Listen, this is what God is doing in your sorrow. God is going to come to you in a brand new way. And He's going to resurrect things you thought cannot be resurrected. I love John 11. <laughs> I love John 11. You know, human love is, going back to John 11, it's like, Human love is, well, whatever's, you know, most convenient and most easy and, 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 and contributes to human well-being. This is not the love of God. The love of God is, how can He give more of Himself to you? And He gave them something beautiful in the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And God is simply challenging you and me to believe that that is true. What did Jesus say to Martha? If what? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Some of you have just given up. You're never going to see the glory of God in your circumstance. Can I say to you, that's a horrible thing to think because God is already in your circumstance. He's already in your circumstance. He was in Job's circumstance. He was in Martha and Mary and Lazarus' circumstance. He's in our circumstance, beloved. We talked about it last week, right? What did Jeremiah learn? 
during the judgment of Jerusalem, what did he learn? He learned not to let his circumstance dictate his view of God, but to let his view of God dictate his view of circumstance. Verse 21, Jesus, as always, gives the perfect analogy, a woman in childbirth. (laughs) I don't know how sorrowful the sorrow is and how much the pain is. I mean, I've witnessed it. It looks pretty hard. Um, but, But afterwards, there's joy. Right? There's just joy. Perfect analogy. As always, Jesus has the perfect analogy. We know the Apostle Paul suffered greater sorrow than I suspect all of us combined ever would in 25 lifetimes. You know what Paul said about his sorrow, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Yeah, I'm sorrowful, but I'm what? Someone tell me. But I'm always rejoicing. Even in the sorrow, I'm always rejoicing. This is what you're supposed to do in the world. And the, the unbelievers are supposed to see you loving God in the sorrow. That's when you're, you know, you say, oh, I can't evangelize. Well, you're evangelizing, you know, every time you react to whatever God puts in your life. You're evangelizing, trust me, either negatively or positively. You're evangelizing because the world is watching you. You claim to be a Christian. You, you claim to be a son or a daughter of the king. You claim that. Well, how's it different for you? when your son dies? How is it different for you when your wife leaves? How is it different? How is it different for you? Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Man, if you don't hear me say anything else tonight, just take that verse home with you. Psalm 126. Five. Notice too in verse 22, Jesus says, and no one takes your joy away from you. It is invincible. We know, we know what uh, the Holy Spirit led Paul to write in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can touch the love and joy of God directed toward His people. Not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, angels, principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall separate us from the love and joy of God. You either believe it or you don't. Verses 23-24 And in that day you will ask Me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything... He will give it to you in My name. Until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Again, we're talking about... He's talking about Pentecost in that day. The Holy Spirit will come. He'll be your teacher. John 16, 13. He'll bring you into all truth. And He will disclose My glory to you. John 16, 14. Jesus says, ask the Father for anything and He will give it to you in My name. This is the fourth time Jesus has said something similar to this since chapter 14 of John. And every time, it's incumbent upon Me make sure that nobody's confused about what is happening here and what is being promised here. God has not just signed up to be your errand boy. God has not just signed up to be your genie in a bottle. We know what uh, 
James tells us about prayer. James 4.3 You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Prayer's not about you getting stuff. I've said it all four times. It's not principally about you getting stuff. It's about you knowing and loving God and doing His will. That's what prayer's about. Knowing, loving, meditating, communing with God. Delighting in God. Stop with give me, give me, give me all the time. Stop it. Please. Stop it. Yes, bring your requests. But how about a little time of just loving God? How about that? How about that? <laughs> you know what? You start spending quality time just loving God, it's way better than any stuff He can give you. <laughs> it's way better than anything you could ask Him for. So prayer is preeminently about knowing God and, and learning what God's will is for you in the world. This is principally what prayer is. It's relational. It's relational. And you guys know 1 John 5, 14, 15. I've said it each time. I'm going to say it one more time. Let me read it to you. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that we have the request which we have asked Him. Jesus prayed it. He taught us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Your will be done on heaven as it is on uh, in, 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 on earth as it is in heaven. He told us to pray that way and then we watch Him pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Not my will, but yours. So this is what prayer is, beloved. This is what it is. Stop naming it and claiming it. Just love God in it, right? You know that prayer that Moses prayed? I loved it. I, I love that prayer that Moses prayed in, in Exodus. I think it's 32 or 33. Show me your glory. When was the last time you prayed that? When was the last time you prayed, God, show me your glory? I want your glory more than I want stuff. Hey, go talk to God like that. I promise you, your relationship's about to change. <laughs> In a good way. In a good way. Verses 25 to 28. These things I have spoken to you in, in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in My name, and I do, um, and I do not say to you uh, that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. Okay, these, uh, these last few verses, well, we've got a few more to go. So let me, let me just say it here. This figurative language, we know, don't we? <laughs> in, in the Gospels, Jesus' words are always like tips of icebergs, right? There's always this vast expanse of truth hidden below. But what He's talking about here is when in that day the Holy Spirit will come and reveal all truth to you. An hour is coming when all that will change and it's coming very soon. Verse 26, what is Jesus saying here? He told him several times during this discourse to pray in His name. 
Here he's telling them what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I'm praying to Jesus so he'll pray to the Father for me. No, that's not it. What does he say in the text? You have loved me and the Father loves you. You go to the Father. There are no intermediaries in biblical Christianity. You don't need the Pope. You don't need the priest. You don't need Mary. You don't need anybody. You go to the Father, right? This is what Christians do. Real Christians. I don't need an intermediary. Jesus has torn the veil. It was in one of the songs. It's gone. I have access. What's the famous text? Hebrews 4.16 Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, this is huge. It's Abba Father from now on. <laughs> right? This was totally alien to, Jew, to, to the Jewish community. His disciples would have no clue what Jesus was talking about here. This is completely alien. Now the veil is rent. Now it's Abba Father. It's Abba Father for all who know and love Him. Okay, let's finish up here. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you, but by this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered to them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation. But, take courage, I have overcome the world. I want to make three points here that are the root of the joy Jesus has been talking about. Okay? There are three points in the text that I just read, the four or five verses that I just read. Verse 27, love. Every human being needs it. Jesus says the Father has loved you. Faith, verses 27 and 30, they believed Man, a human being needs to believe. And we believe in God. And then there's hope. Verse 33. Jesus says, take courage. Now, you know, it's nice when people, in, when people come along and say, uh, you know, they say encouraging things. That's nice. But when God says it, what? <laughs> you can take it to the bank. God says, take courage. God says it. The guy who speaks two trillion galaxies into existence, he says it. So why can't we be a joyful people? God loves us. We believe Him, man. We believe what He says. We believe what He did. We believe what He's promised. And we have this hope that is imperishable. As Peter writes, you can't keep me from being joyful. Right? Try and stop me from being joyful. Right? <laughs> If we're believing what Jesus is saying here, and you see it here again, tribulation. We've said it many times through this uh, farewell sermon. It will get hard. It's coming. All those who live to, who desire to live righteously, will suffer persecution. Second Timothy three thirteen. It will happen. But God says, take courage. <laughs> take courage. So I just want to close with First John. 5, 4, and 5. Because, for me, it's an exhortation to those here who are not in relationship with Christ. It's a call to come. And for those of you who do know Christ, it's a challenge. 
for you to live an overcoming life. So I'm just going to read uh, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Many of you are familiar with it. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Amen? Joy! Because I have the love of God. I believe in God. And I hope in God. Try and stop me! You know, I need a... Yeah, that'd be the title of a good book. Just try and stop me, man. After what my God has said and what my God has done and what my God has promised. Yeah. Okay. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to say to those of you in here who don't know Christ, who don't love Him, maybe you're a church member, maybe you're a churchgoer, but you don't know Him. There's nothing real going on. I'm saying to you, come. Come and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Come. Repent of your sins and come. And you will taste the joy of God. You will find the hope of God. You will find, yeah, that you can trust God. <laughs> you can take courage for the balance of your days. And for the Christian here, the born-again believer, the lover of God, I'll just ask you, how's that joy ratio going in your life? It always comes from one thing. You know, the kind of prayer I was talking to you about, not just to give me prayer, but I love you and to sit there and be still and listen. It, it, it's in the prayer and it's in the obedience. You know, a lot of Christians come to me and they say, Jim, I, I just don't have it, man. I don't feel it. And I say, well, are you obeying God? What has God challenged you to obey Him in that you're not obeying Him in? And inevitably, there's at least one thing. That's it. That's always it. You don't have joy. That's it. You're disobeying God. It doesn't cost God anything, but it costs you everything. Listen, beloved, I'm saying to you, I learned this lesson a long time ago. You want deep joy with God? Obey Him. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. So, for those of you who are Christians and you need to repent tonight, I'm just going to share with you David's Psalm 51, just a couple of excerpts and then we're done. Here's David's cry of repentance, right? Purify me. Wash me. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of Yourself. You want God's joy? Repent and believe and obey. It's not hard. It's not complicated. <laughs> I love this text. Jesus says, when you walk with Me, you will begin to feel My joy and My pleasure. And you will never stop beginning to feel My joy and My pleasure. Jesus says, take her and go live it huge. Let's pray together. Lord, what an amazing, what an amazing passage. <laughs> wow. Your joy. Not just maximum human joy, Your joy. Your love. Yes, we believe. 
And we have hope and we do take courage because You are faithful and competent, God. Lord, help us. If there's one here tonight who does not know You, I pray that they would begin to pursue and love and know. For those of, here, those, of here, those of us here who are in relationship with You, Father, I pray that we would go to the next level. I pray that we would stop. I pray that we would tarry no longer. I pray that we would go on with You. Lord, life's just too short. It's just too short. This life is too short. Help us, Father, to see that and then to be a good steward of the moments that You give us. Help us, Father, we pray. We pray this in the wonderful and yeah, matchless name of Jesus. We pray it in His name. We love You. Amen. Let's stand and I will close this with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Listen, have a great week. Listen, what's God offering here? Joy, hope, love. What was the other one? Himself. God is the Gospel. If you've never read that book and you're inclined to read books you know, based on theology, you need to read this book. God is the Gospel by John Piper. I highly commend it to you. Uh, have a great week. God bless. Hope to see you next time.